Um, thanks, Ed. And uh, just to start with, how many of you have heard of the Peer Project? And how many of you represent institutions or organizations that are part of the Peer Project? Yeah, so we, ha we have a few people around the room who are also associated with it, so you can target them later with questions as well. Okay, so the Peer Project's investigating the effects of um, systematic um, self-archiving, self the um, effects of green open access. Now, Peer was conceived against a backdrop of um, somewhat heated debate. Um, there was agreement between the publishing and research communities that um, the, the, uh, there should be a, a wide access to um, results of research, but there were um, very different views on whether mandated deposits were, were necessary, what embargo periods should be, what the effects might be on, the, on journals. So PEER was started with the objectives of um, monitoring the effects of this large-scale systematic archiving. It's an experiment and um, involved the creation of an observatory of uh, repositories so we could actually measure things. It was planned to commission three research studies um, looking at usage at publisher and repository platforms and on author and reader behavior in the context of green open access, use of repositories, and looking at some of the economic um, effects of green open access and the implications of that. And one of the key things about PEER is that it has been a collaborative project representing all the stakeholder groups involved in, um, the, in scientific communication. So the project itself was initially planned to last for three years, um, but you'll notice in the first line there, there's a nine-month extension. Now that is actually very important because the extension was required because this was much, much more difficult than anybody had ever imagined at the outset. It's a big project, both in terms of participants and also the, the, the funding necessary for the project to run, 4.2 million euros. In terms of numbers, peer by numbers, there are five executive partners representing different stakeholder communities. We have STM, who acts as the coordinator of the project, the European Science Foundation, the University of Göttingen, the Max Planck Society, and INRIA, and two technical partners, University of Bielefeld and SURF. We have 12 publishers, who I'll, I'll name separately on the next slide. They've collectively provided 241 journals to actively participate in the project. There's been the creation of Peer Depot, a dark archive, which does much, much more, which I'll tell you about later. We have six different repositories, who I'll also tell you about. And there will be a um, long-term preservation archive. Um, the peer content will be preserved for the future. And as I said, we commissioned three research studies. So there are participating publishers. Um, many of you will be very familiar with most, if not all of them. I'm sure you know all of them. And you'll know that they're small publishers, large publishers, society publishers, university presses, and larger commercial publishers represented here. So we've got a good cross-section of the, of the whole STM uh, publishing community there. And a similar situation is um, the case for the repositories we have. Uh, institutional repositories, we have national repositories in the case of HAL, 
INRIA, and we have um, a subject repository, SSOER, in the social sciences. Now, the peer observatory, which has been built for the purposes of the experiment, consists of the publisher platforms, where we're measuring usage, the peer depot, which is a core part of the project, and the peer repositories. The peer depot acts as a clearinghouse. It also processes the content for the project. I'll tell you a bit more about that later. And the peer repositories hold the content and provide usage data for the, for the usage research part of the project. On the content inflow, I mentioned 241 participating journals. They're actually split across four broad, very broad subject areas, life sciences, medicine, physical sciences, and social sciences and humanities. But not only are they split across subject areas, they're, um, they've been split in terms of their um, impact factor. So one of the things when the project was set up was there was agreement that there would be a variety of journals included of different quality levels. So it wasn't just lower tier journals or top journals involved. So we have top tier journals, middle tier journals, and lower tier journals by impact factor, and some journals with no impact factor. They may be too young or in a subject area where um, impact factors are perhaps not um, used as, as commonly. But for many of our publishers, they have a significant number of flagship titles in here. So again, we have a good cross-section of journals um, in, within the project. And the project was set up with two different content flow um, systems. One, where the publisher would basically act on behalf of the authors and, de and deposit directly into the project. And the other half, where authors would be invited to self-archive into, into the project. So looking at the content flow in a bit more detail, the publishers, at the outset, we split the, the, the journals um, about 50-50 in terms of content for each of the four subject areas so that the publishers would um, provide half of the content and for the other half, the authors would be invited to self-deposit. Partway through the project, we had to change that dynamic so that more publisher content was submitted to ensure that we had a critical mass into the project. So the publishers were providing content, but also in, in the form of manuscripts, but also metadata. They provided metadata for all the articles, not just the manuscripts they were providing, but also those for whom the authors had been uh, invited to self-deposit, so that we could have a mechanism for matching up to take all the content further through the project. So the publishers invited authors to self-deposit. Those authors that did that, accessed, you know, well, submitted their content through a central deposit interface that was built for the project. All content went into the peer depot, where it was filtered for EU content and then sent out to the various participating repositories. So overall, that's the observatory, the peer observatory. In terms of content volumes, the, the content feed essentially stopped um, late summer, early autumn last year by which time the publishers had provided about 53,000 manuscripts into the project for filtering for EU content. And as you can see, the, the bright yellow line there um, shows the total number of EU manuscripts, but some were still awaiting metadata, 
Um, others, the, the middle orange line um, shows that the, the manuscripts and all the metadata was available and they were being held under embargo before being sent to repositories. And then the, the dark orange content that shows you what was sent out to repositories by that time. So you can see the increase from the start of the project, feed started late 2009, up until the end of the content feed in um, autumn last year. And just looking at the EU deposits in particular, you can see how the, how the content grew within the project throughout its duration and how the embargo expired content has been increasing throughout and um, the content is still expiring today more will have expired and been sent out to the repositories and as of March we had over 18,000 manuscripts from the project available in participating repositories. So just mapping the numbers onto the the content flow diagram over 53,000 manuscripts submitted by the publishers. Publishers invited over 11,000 authors to self-archive, 170 authors took up that opportunity. After filtering, we had 22,500 EU manuscripts in the project. And as I said, we now have 18,000 embargo expired manuscripts within the participating repositories, with the exception of SSOAR who are having a subset for their subject area. So I mentioned that the project had had an extension and um, we start now to see some of the challenges that the project was faced with um, in, in terms of um, getting the project to move forward. So one of the first things was that in publisher workflows, the stage two accepted manuscripts was not a, a normal extraction point for, for content. So in some cases, different, you know, changes had to be made. Um, author accepted manuscripts are provided in a variety of file formats. Um, the project, as, as we'll see, um, has decided to go with PDFs, but they can be, they can be submitted in, in Word or um, many, other, many other formats. The journals have been submitting um, different article types, so not just research. There could be review articles, research articles, letters to editors, corrigenda, etc. So all these had to be um, filtered. Metadata, at the acceptance stage, some publishers don't have a DOI assigned and nobody knows what the publication date is at the acceptance stage. So um, we're, there was a difficulty in work, the workflow, getting a workaround um, to ensure that full metadata could be provided to the project. And if we look at some of the, the solutions there, some of the publishers actually provided their metadata in two steps. So one at the acceptance with the publication date and DOI um, added later. Other publishers held the stage two content until publication so they could provide all the metadata at one time. In terms of the metadata schemas, there is a wide variety used by the publishers, both you know, across publishers and, and at times within publishing houses. So that was another challenge for the, for the project. So that had to be sort of normalized into one format within the project. And then although the publishers, all the publishers provided a core set of mandatory metadata, some of the repositories wanted to have additional information such as volume issue page numbers. So there was a challenge to ensure that was being provided 
And um, within the project, there's a, a system being adopted called GrowBid, which has been developed by um, the people at INRIA to extract metadata elements from within PDFs. So that's one, one of the interesting technical outcomes from the project. Similarly, for the repositories, there were additional challenges. Different repositories have different metadata requirements. I've just given one example. They have varying ingestion processes. They had to um, work out how to host the peer content because it's different to what they're normally used to, especially if they're an institutional repository. Many of the repositories weren't configured for accurate embargo management. Even if they had a system to essentially manage embargoes without knowing the accurate publication date and the embargo period, they couldn't do it correctly. Many institutional repositories only accept content from authors from that institute. So they had to, we had to find a mechanism for allowing authors from outside to, to provide um, content as well. And there was the challenge of providing log files. So we used the peer, peer depot to a great extent to, to help solve some of these challenges for the repositories. And the repositories themselves also change systems within them, much like the publishers had to do to be able to adapt to peer. And we had some other challenges. Now here's what's happening in the black box of the peer depot. I won't go through it in detail, but you know, it, it filters, it processes, it changes metadata schemas and manages embargoes. So just to pull up some of the achievements to date, I won't go through the full list, but you can see it's been a collaborative effort. We have a working infrastructure and over 18,000 deposits are already in repositories. Now we've commissioned three research projects looking at usage, behavior, and economics. To help us with the, the research part of the project, we have a research oversight group with three experts on the panel, and I'm pleased that uh, Professor Carol Tenapier is actually in the audience today. So if you have questions <laughs> for a research oversight group member, Carol is around. Now, the role of the research oversight group is to help keep the research independent from the executive members so that there's no bias in there to keep it as independent as possible. The research oversight group have helped us validate the, the research questions to ask, the methodologies being used, and then to evaluate the deliverables to make sure that these are correct results. So how does the research map onto our observatory? Well, for the behavioral research, the publishers helped invite the um, authors to respond to questionnaires. The publishers and the repositories have been de delivering log files for the usage research and were queried and interviewed for the economics research. The economics research also queried groups out with the peer participants. So in the behavioral research, they were, they were looking at the behavior of authors and users, asking them what, what open access means to them, what green open access means, and what, what their use of repositories, what they want from a repository, and, and what their concerns might be. And there's some common themes running through these conclusions. So only a minority of researchers associated open access with self-archiving and that was mostly those in the physical sciences of which within peer it's mainly physics 
and mathematics and the social sciences. And I think that's because within those communities, um, repositories such as Archive and SSRN, which we'll hear more of in a minute, um, they've, they've been around for a long time and have been you know, adopted by those communities. In the medical and life sciences, they're more likely to associate open access with the gold road, the author pays model. Authors tend to be favourable to open access, but they don't want to change the current system. They seem to like the journals. They don't want to lose the journals. Using the repositories, readers want to know what they're looking at. And um, the, the research has shown that, especially at the point where they're writing a research paper, they want to see the final published version. They want to know they're looking at the final published version of the article. And the last point is um, you know, explain somewhat the, la the, the, the low author response we had when inv inviting authors to self-deposit, that some researchers see, don't see you know, self-archiving as um, their responsibility. On the economics research, um, they took the approach of investigating, you know, interviewing all the, the, the repositories and publishers to try and get a better understanding of what business models are used, where the costs actually lie within the different processes. And some of the, some of the outcomes that have um, come from that research are when in the past we've, we've had studies that have been done that show article publication costs um, are around sort of three to four thousand dollars and more. And our research through PEER has found that the salary cost alone, the sal salary element alone for peer review is around $250. But on top of that, you have overheads. You have investments in systems and infrastructure. And it's not a scalable cost. So if you take more submissions, it doesn't get cheaper to undertake peer review. Um, looking to the, the production part of publication, your costs range from 170 to over $400 per article, but not counting overheads. And then when you look at the platform costs, maintenance alone annually can cost between 170 to $400,000 a year. Now that excludes setup and development costs, which typically cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a time. Now, I'm aware that within Peer, at least four publishers have changed platform within the last two years. So there are substantial costs involved in the platforms um, being used. And looking at the, the business models and the, the, the market that the publishers and repositories operate in, repository costs, they're often sunk within library costs or institutional costs. So there are real costs associated with repositories, but they might not be easy to identify. And both publishers and repositories have to compete within a marketplace. You've, if you have a, a, you have a critical mass of content, you need to build a critical mass of content. But then on top of that, you have to be providing services to make it useful for your end users. And I think our next talk will tell us a bit more about how a repository can be successful in that marketplace. The, all the, all the um, results from the research, behavioral and economics, are available already on the, on the PEER website. The usage research is still ongoing. It's the first large-scale comparative collection of art, article level of usage data. It's looking for trends at the publishers and repository sites. 
and to see if we can understand a bit more whether new usage is coming in or whether it's a migration. There will be two main reports come out of the usage research. Um, the core, there will be a core measurement done over a 12-month period looking mainly at a six-month section from March to August last year. Now, we don't have the final results on this, but the preliminary indicators are that it's showing a 5% migration from publisher platforms to repository sites. And we hopefully get more information on whether that is common across the, across the board, whether it's increasing, decreasing, stable, um, at the, you know, once the final research is done. And to check the, the results, we also have a randomized controlled trial. We couldn't do a random selection of content on the way they feed into the project because of technical difficulties. But what we did was suppressed half of the content randomly selected at repositories to undertake further usage research to check that there were no effects, um, that there were true, uh, so the research results will be true research results rather than um, other effects taking place there. The usage research, plus much more about the project and discussions, a multi-stakeholder um, discussion, roundtable round discussion about the, the project results, is going to take place on the 29th of May in Brussels. Registration is free. There are still some places available. Um, outside, on the under the message board, the table, I've put some peer leaflets and they tell you also about the date of the conference. So if anybody's interested, I'd encourage you to register for the conference. Come and find out more. Thank you. Great. Well, you have time for uh, any, any questions. Anybody? Any questions? I have a question. <laughs> Um, there were some uh, comments on, on Twitter about the, the, the rate of, you know, that 11,800 uh, uh, authors were, or researchers were invited to, to deposit, and 170 did. Yes. You know, obviously, that, that's quite, uh, quite low. Did you see any uh, changes during the project? Were there any things that, that changed that would make it, I mean, things coming out of that that might indicate what the barriers are to, to researchers? Self-archiving. I, I think the beha the behavioural research. I mean, there, were, there was one. You know, at the, they said there anecdotal evidence that researchers, many of them, don't feel it's their responsibility. Um, obviously, there may be other reasons for people at their own institution. They can see an incentive, perhaps, in, in self-archiving within their own institutional repository, and perhaps for them, peer didn't mean as much. Um, we, that's why we also had to shift because the, the response rate was much lower than we had anticipated given other results of self-archiving levels, um, which is why we, we shifted more journals over onto the publisher deposit route to ensure a critical mass of content to make, the, make sure the results from the, the usage research were valid. But in terms, in terms of the reasons behind them not self-archiving, that's an area for further investigation. If there are no questions, and uh, thank you very much, Julian. Thank you.